Hello everyone, this is Ron Small. Welcome to the fourth episode of this podcast on SwayProductions.com and on iTunes. Thank you for listening and sending all the emails uh, you've been sending. Feel free to uh, continue letting me know what works and what doesn't work about the show. I really appreciate it and I'm going to, uh, to get to some of your questions hopefully next time. This interview went a bit long, so for the sake of some semblance of brevity, I'm going to keep this intro as brief as I can. On this episode, I interview the great Jason Wingrove, director and co-host of the wonderful RC Podcast, which is easily my favorite podcast at the moment. What I love about the RC is it's become this sort of forum that celebrates the intersecting of new technologies and storytelling. Rather than just geek out over technology, the show really emphasizes how a particular technology can improve how you tell your story. Throughout this interview, if there is a theme to it, it's the effect that the DSLR revolution has had and continues to have on various facets of filmmaking. These last couple years have been really exciting for me in terms of the, the kind of work that's being done in commercial production because of this technology as well as the, the increase in content being produced for the web, uh, but also what a, a filmmaker like Edward Burns is doing. I haven't seen his new movie, Newlyweds, which he shot on the 5D, but it's exciting that he was able to make something so cheaply. The uh, production itself is estimated at about 9000 and the post-production was, I think, uh, a bit closer to 100000 With this new technology have come uh, some new modes of distribution, all of which are, are still in their formative stages. Uh, Burns is distributing the film through iTunes, which is looking like it might become a popular mode of distribution for some more established independent filmmakers like Burns and, and like the Polish Brothers, who recently uh, successfully distributed their super low-budget film for lovers only on iTunes, which uh, which so far has grossed over $300,000. You can see how this wave of cheaper technologies has in many ways invigorated Jason Wingrove's recent work. Check out his website, jasonwingrove.com, uh, and look at his uh, breathtakingly beautiful Sea Pools mini-documentaries his Australia mining campaign spots, and more. In the interview, we discuss how this technology has uh, affected his work, how it's sort of excited him to get out of bed and be doing more exciting work. And here's Jason Wingrove on this podcast. Take me back to when you were uh, a young Jason growing up in the UK. What, what was it that inspired you to get into filmmaking? I can really sort of attribute it to a couple of things, I guess. My dad was a photographer, um... For Condé Nast, and he used to do uh, house and garden and stuff. And I used to, there always, always used to be cameras hanging around the house, and uh, we'd often go to the studio to watch him shoot and sometimes be in the shoots. Um, so I kind of, I guess, got an interest in the behind the scenes. I was interested in the behind the scenes. And we also uh, lived about, I think, about sort of a few miles from from Pinewood Studios and they used to have this open day every year where we would go as kids and uh, clamber through the 007 stage and uh, I think at the one, one memorable time was they had just wrapped shooting Superman the movie and the, one of the whole stages was fitted out with like in the entire thing as far as you can see was big polystyrene blocks it was like his the ice uh, ice cave or fortress of solitude or whatever it's called and uh, so there's lots of polaroid photos of me holding up big polystyrene rocks or um trapped in the uh, child cat catches um cart from chitty chitty bang bang or you know rambling through the old props there 
And when you were a teenager, you, you started to work on various sets? Yeah, I did. Um, well, at school, I was pretty crappy at school. Plenty of my reports said that uh, school was not my environment. So I just applied for a film school course and did that. And uh, part of the course structure was to do uh, a year full-time and then go out into the industry and try and find a gig. And pretty much that's when I sort of realised the kind of chasm of knowledge between what they teach you in a school and what you can learn in the real life, in, you know, in the real world. Because I, after I went away and did that one year kind of, you know, year in, in, in the wilderness thing, I was coming back and was sort of having stand-up arguments with teachers as to, you know, how you do stuff and, you know, why I'm not crossing the line when they thought I was and, you know, have all this sort of um, realisation that, that uh, you can learn a lot more by getting out there. So basically, yeah, I did um, start it off as in the camera department as a um, clap alert. I think I remember my first, first, first day on a commercial. Um, and up until that point, I just had film school and just we'd laced, you know, 100 foot loads of, of 16 mil into um, Canon Scoopic cameras and had sort of messed around with how you load 400 foot, but really only 16 mil. And day one was, I was given a stack of thousand foot loads, which I'd never seen of 35 mil, which I'd never really handled. And here's five mags and here's thousands and thousands of feet of film. Okay. Load them. Uh, so I just, you know, fudged it and just loaded this film and I must've got it right. Uh, and I, uh, the production company I was working for and thinking I was getting about $40 a day just loading as a loader on this, the director just shot a ton of film. So I never really saw a lot of on set. I was just spending my time in, the, in just feeding the machine and putting putting thousand foots after thousand foot into, into, the, um, into the mags and unloading them. So, yeah, camera department for... 10 or 12 years really, which was um, a long slog, but good, good fun. You know, got to get to see a lot of different directors working and um, a lot of, watch a lot of cameraman, watch a lot of bad shoots, watch a lot of great shoots and, you know, just observe, I guess, un unknowingly just observing, I suppose. Did having that uh, really kind of a, a real world film school experience sort of inform the way that you eventually approach directing? I don't, I don't think... I really could have, I don't think I really came away with this sort of hit list of must do it this way, must never do that. I think it just was a frustrating process that once once you knew your own job backwards and once all of that became subconscious and you were just, you're just sitting on the apple box observing, then it just became all the more frustrating when, you know, why aren't we moving on? You know, the, the, the grumbling crew thing of, come on, can't we finish this shot? Let's get out of here, I'm bored. Um, so I think it was more just frustration that, you know, I was sitting there thinking, Hey, I can do better when well, I'm sure I probably couldn't, but it was that sort of foolish, you, you know, like teenagers thinking they always know better thing, you know? So I think I was just frustrated rather than actually sitting there judiciously learning, um, how, how better to do it. I guess I'm sure I subconsciously picked it up. I think one, actually what I'm going to say Contrary to that, one of my best experiences in learning things was working for a couple of directors um, who worked for one particular production company who I used to do a lot of work with. And 
um, that was um, Glenn Thomas and Ray Lawrence, and uh, they both had sort of different. Glenn was had come from a stills background, which I guess I really, uh, you know, draw, drawn to, and Ray was uh, Ray still is one of Australia's finest uh, drama and uh, dialogue uh, feature directors, and it was just a great eye-opener as to how, because, you know, this was like the 80s and 90s, right? So, like, every second commercial is like um, a, a money fest, an absolute huge budget, more money than cents production where you just do day upon day upon day in production and you just have trucks and trucks of gear and um, megawatts of of uh, firepower and cameras upon cameras and just more money more money than they knew what to do with and very little ideas and these guys were sort of the antithesis of that and they really i guess it was also I enjoyed it because i would get a bit of a a chance to do uh, a bit of a leg up you know rather than camera assisting they'd sort of ask me to operate or rather than operate they'd ask me to shoot because it was a very minimal approach and it was more based on the idea and a really nice script and the clever execution of that script and it was really all about honesty and lighting stuff without lights just literally bouncing a bit of light or the beauty that could be in natural light and the and what you can achieve if you don't ask your if you hire great actors in the first place but don't ask them to do a thousand takes and um, just and also more if you just set the camera up and just sit back and observe them interplaying and don't break it down into this is the shot where we do those three lines and then we'll cut then we'll go over here and we'll shoot your two lines from this angle. It was really more of a this is the scene set it all up uh, and and he would never even really see action he'd just say in your own time. And we'd just be make sure you're bloody rolling and just follow it. So it was a great training from uh, sort of almost a documentarian point of view that you would just sit back and watch and just know you know your shit and just follow what was going on and you know um, be prepared for whatever the actors are going to do. And uh, they loved it too. And you know, crew kind of loved it. Although we didn't get any overtime out of it, we were always were pretty much finished by lunchtime. So it was, but the results were always fantastic, and they were always some of the best spots on air, and better than the highly overproduced, meaningless visual-based spots that that in the eighties and nineties were just so uh, so prevalent. So. Um, and I think one of the, and, and that was more Ray Lawrence and Glenn, who, uh, it was, really was a wonderful training because he, being more of a stills person, it would be just me and him. So it would be this sort of multi-skilling thing where we'd all, you know, we'd all be the, the gaffer or we'd all be sort of, we had to solve the little pack shop problem and work out with bubble, with rubber bands and paper clips how you solve this issue and uh it was really lovely there was no time pressures and really just being a crew of two we or three we didn't you know it was just like okay there was no catering we'd just get up and walk to the nearest restaurant and it was a very simple um way of doing things and i just fell in love with that um thought pattern and have sort of always held on to a bit of that really 
Uh, although I do, you know, I love the visual side of things and I love, you know, the big productions and I love, um, you know, that massive kind of almost music video style. It's just not, it's just not what I've done. As you were working as a, a camera assistant I, and I was looking through some of your credits and, and I noticed that you, um, you worked on the, um, the seminal uh, Yahoo Serious film, uh, Young Einstein, <laughs> written you know and directed by Yahoo Serious. You know that film? Yeah, so I used to watch that ad all the time uh, when I was a kid. Don't ask me why, but um, <laughs> do, do you remember working it's on one that? Of my, yeah, it's one of my few, but I was only on it for a few weeks because it was one of those films that uh, pretty much everybody in Sydney worked on. <laughs> Yeah, because it just went on and on and on, and they kept rewriting <laughs> stuff and reshooting stuff, and um, and that's what they came up with, though, huh? Yeah, well, it kept um, it was bizarre production because it would just they'd just do lots of pickups and lots of reshoots, and, and sorry, it wasn't reshoots; it, they were enhancements. Yes, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, like was, that scene uh, where he's in the bath uh, playing the violin, and he he discovers rock and roll. It's it's a nut, it's a crazy it's a crazy film. Um, uh, but no, I mean I only, I didn't I was on probably second unit or probably main, second and or main unit for just for two or three weeks. So I didn't do a ton of it. Was there any sense that that uh, while you were on that for a couple of weeks uh, that 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 was going to become a a huge international hit? I don't think so. Um, I you know I think there's that's always the way with a lot of those uh, films that. People working on them just think, I have no idea this would become really popular. Yeah. I had mates who worked on The Matrix here and they just said, they are just stunned that they got what they shot out of that film, uh, particularly with uh, Keanu's dialogue. Right, yeah. <laughs> just amazed that, um, you know, they, they, they stitch it together. So, well, not, I mean, you know, everyone knew that they were working, you know, doing some amazing stuff, but, uh, you know, no one expected it to be as good and to launch a lot of people's careers and to go on to, you know, multiple sequels. How did you go about getting into cinematography? Well, I never really got to the full DP thing. I did a bit of it and I was mainly camera. I really went from uh, first AC to, to director, really. I entered this competition. I entered it literally at like not even 11th hour, like 11th hour, 59 minute, 59 seconds, entered this film competition, uh, which was called the Camera Operator Encouragement Award. And it was um, a camera rental house and Kodak and the lab here got together and offered camera, they would offer, I think they would give three people film and processing and camera rental uh to, if you submit a script, they'd give three the best scripts, um, uh, all of these facilities to make a film, and they would finish it, and they would sound mix it, and process the film, and all the rest. So entered at the very last minute, and um, was one of the three, and ended up winning it as well, which was icing on the cake. But uh, it basically was a, a four-minute little short, uh, which became my only directing reel. I think I showed it to a production company and they said, oh, we'll, we'll rep you. I said, what do you mean you'll rep me? Well, as a director. I said, okay. So that sort of became my my uh, reel with no commercials on it. So they kind of took it took it and nurtured me into um, and pushed, pushed me to, you know, obviously at first very small charity kind of freebie stuff, but it didn't really matter. And um, not long after that, I 
sort of said basically I'm not going to do any more camera assisting and I just had to make that that leap in which you know at the time everyone just thought I was just insane but I think the fear of going forward has to be uh, less than the want to move on I guess if it had happened any other way I might have been you know a feature guy or a doco guy or any that sort of stuff how did you get your work to the production company that hired you? I was working for them as a camera assistant on a lot of their jobs. Just showed it to them one day on set. And I think, you know, production companies are always looking for for somebody new or for the young things to promote or to have as a little side hobby or whatever it was. And, and how old were you at the time? Mm, mm, maybe 20. Wow. I so think, was that kind of uh, you, was that a daunting kind of task to to start doing that, or were you, you? Well, I was. Yeah, I guess it was daunting, but I really just was pretty bored doing what I was doing. I didn't want to be. I wasn't really very good at the, the DPing thing. I didn't really want to do that, and I think ultimately, although I think when I started, I was quite happy to be in the camera department. I think when you get in there. Uh, and this is not a case for a lot of DPs, but this is for, for me. I found that that the DP really still wasn't kind of running the show, and I kind of worked out that creatively, you you know, you had to um, if you wanted to make any real creative input or you know have any sort of control. That was that director guy you had to be, not that other guy who sat next to me on the other Apple box and grumbled in my ear all day about, I uh, hate this shot and hate this freaking director and this is a stupid shot and I've never given me enough time to light this and, you know, I wanted these other lenses and whinge, whinge, whinge. Everyone whinges, but uh, I just got to hear that guy's whinges. So I kind of, <laughs> gee, I don't want to be him. <laughs> I want to be that guy over there who's telling everyone what to do. Since you bring that up, there's a, a friend of mine and a collaborator, um, cinematographer friend of mine, Jesse Dana. He, um, he I told him you were going to be on the show, and, and he uh, he asked me a question to ask you, and he, he put it in an email, so I'm going to read it to you. Uh, he says, I've thought at times of exploring directing, but it seems to exercise a different part of my mind, more about creating or originating ideas, and less about translating or executing them. The idea of trying to do both of those things together seems a little daunting. Do you find switching between directing, DPing, and doing both together changes how you do either task? Well, I don't. I'm definitely consider myself a director first and foremost. The DPing thing is something that has come, I guess, kind of come back to me a little bit, uh, and we can touch on later whys and the whys and wherefores of that. But um, I will choose whether I DP or not. Because, you know, I'm a man and we can only do one thing at a time. I sort of fight it. If if the uh, if the DPing itself, the shooting is going to be too taxing or if there's going to be a lot too much to do or if the schedule is insane or if there's some really, you know, there's a lot of performances and stuff to deal with or kids or if the directing side is, I know it's going to be a real task. I will, there's no way I'll shoot it. I'll, I'll get a DP in, of course. But um, if it's, you know, if it's minimal or simple or if it's more visual based now versus um, d drama or dialogue, I will, I will happily, sh happily shoot it. So I think I sort of pick and choose really depending on the workload of the job. So, yeah, no, he's definitely right. It's, 
it is I have such respect for people like Steven Soderbergh who can shoot their stuff and do in very intense, complicated scenes and fantastic dialogue and to, to, to do to do those things together really well. What fluctuations have you seen um, in the business since you've started? I, I noticed uh, on, on Twitter that you um, somewhat recently you, you mentioned that a, a DP and a gaffer that you often worked with both switched into uh, into real estate. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, in yeah. your experience, has the industry become more difficult for uh, for people to make a living in? Well, one of those DPs uh, it was a you know top and you know, excellent DP, but is was uh, one of those eighties nineties stars and want you know had a lot of. Um, I'm sure he's making a ton more money for a start, but um, you know I think there's a couple of things there. One is like adapt or die. And the other one is multi-skilling. And I think people, everyone has sort of had to adapt a little bit now and take on a few more skills or not take on more skills, but you either have to uh, move forward and start working with how, I guess the lower budgets and um, having to do a bit more in a day these days and having to think a little bit smart about what you do. You either have to um, work out a way where you can get a really nice look without having to have uh, the street filled with removalist size trucks loaded with, with, with gear and, and lights to be able to do that. Um, so I think stuff like certainly lighting and I can understand gaffers moving to uh, real estate because uh, that's a massive investment which just isn't being used as much now we've you know I we've moved at least here we're moving a bit more towards a more natural kind of more documentarian approach where you use and this has all come from the 5d you know uh, or that sort of DSLR revolution as the cameras get more prolific and as they get a bit more um it gets i want to say it gets easier to make stuff look good but um you can use the lenses and light and depth and stuff of these of these new cameras to people are, are, are learning and getting used to the look of more natural light and using that to best effect and i think Lighting is one of those things where we've seen a real change in the way that is done. You know, because everybody, at least in in advertising, everybody, nobody wants to make ads. Advertisers don't want to make ads. They want to make little stories that don't look like ads. Everyone's desperately trying to make their ad not look like one. That's why you know everyone has this sort of milky grade or gold handheld and all that sort of stuff. No one wants. Everyone wants to make it look like it was just captured as it happens and you know 9,000% people fail miserably and you end up just with another ad that looks like it's not trying to be an ad so I think um, there's been a real change in the way we shoot stuff and uh, I'm quite welcoming the sort of more change towards honesty and a bit more reality and uh, but nobody wants their ad and rightly so nobody wants their stuff to just look like um, a doco they want it to make look like uh, a gorgeous doco, you know, or they want to make it look like it captured as it, it was captured as it happened in real life, but make it look gorgeous. So there's a shift to the way you do make stuff look look lovely, and it's less and less about 
how much backlight you pump in or Dutch tilt or tracking six inches off the ground with, you know, a snorkel lens. This is, it's more all about, um, using some simpler stuff to make stuff look good with be it depth, be it, um, be it lensing, be it, um, light really just all natural, more natural light and capturing it better rather than pumping it in from, uh, four generators on the street. So there's definitely been that change and that has resulted in, you know, being a lot less viable to own a truck full of four million dollars worth of lights and have that sitting out on the street day after day, not earning money. Um, and it's less popular to be the 80s, 90s DP star that wants to come on set and says, okay, we need 16 sizzle lists across that window with 12. Uh, we want... Um, four 12k xenons and six 18ks and start demand i need i need two three cameras and this one's got to be a 150 to 600 mil that one's uh uh give me this lens on that camera and walk in and be the sort of hollywood superstar and start um saying you really must have all these things otherwise you can't possibly you know do this job right and do it justice so yeah there's definitely been a a, a shift in the way stuff gets done um and yeah there's been some casualties and i think also the um multi-skilling thing people i think i've been i guess having that camera background um i've been able to be a bit more hands-on now and particularly with and why i've always embraced the the digital uh, arena as as a dp the or the as a director to be able to shoot my own stuff gets a little bit easier when I don't have not just the stress of getting commercial done and getting good performances and dealing with video village and if you're not not having to have the stress also of um, uh, waiting for rushes to see if I exposed it right or uh, you know the extra decisions of what film stock to buy and how much film stock were you shooting and how much stock are we are we running out do we need to get more i don't know if we need to get more just freaking get more i'm I'm going and this is good and i'm loving it and we're running out of time just don't freaking ask me questions like that you know the whole stress of of shooting on film and and also um i think partly why or a large part why i embraced the digital side of things um from a director point of view was and editors hate this and is the ability to just uh, longer takes, you know, to not have to stop the action and the performances and the creativity of the uh, actors every four minutes to be able to wait for four minutes while we put more film on. Um, and also that whole, you know, film has this sort of adds this extra little level of tension, I think, on set that I was always conscious of as a director. I didn't really care as, as, a, as a crew person, you know, that was just how you did it. But as a director, I was always conscious of the amount of film running through the camera. If I just wanted to just, often the nice stuff is if they do the second or third take in a row, actors do the second or third take in a row, and if they know that there's no there's less pressure on them to get it right in that one take. Um, 
or that last five foot of film or, you know, they have this pressure put on them that if they don't get it right, then they'll have to stop and put more film on and there'll be this whole uh, sort of, you know, there's that, and this whole thing of slates and throwing up slates in front of their face. I mean, seasoned actors are used, used to this, but still there's this whole sphincter tightening, I call it the sphincter tightening moment of um, a slate up and the whole sequence of and standby and roll sound and roll camera and 12 take five and marker and set and action. You know, it just goes against the whole, I just really love to run a very relaxed set and yeah, my sphincter just started tightening as you as you started doing all that. <laughs> and I I just like to run a really more relaxed set. I like I like actors to feel that they can um play with it and do stuff different and throw you know and have fun with it. You know, uh, to be able to say something slightly differently or say a line a slightly different way if it feels better or uh, interrupt another actor if it feels that way or just just for them to know that there is not that pressure mostly not that pressure to get all that dialogue done in 25 seconds or to get it done and don't make a mistake otherwise we have to start again then we have to put more film in the camera and you don't have that dollar dollar every second running through the camera and and the whole set gets infused with this slight sort of stress the fact that there is this limited amount of stuff going through that camera and everyone it's like a countdown you know it's a hollywood countdown you look on the little on the readout on the camera it's counting down it's on the split you know it's telling you how much footage you got left in the camera everything is all about sort of this whole oh my god you're going to run out every time i because i like that that whole thing of wanting to do two or three takes in a row sometimes because it just stuff gets improved and while they're on the run while the blood's pumping you want to kind of just keep them doing different things and have that ability to play with it and i don't want the momentum stopped by having to stop and do the whole sphincter tightening moment over and over um you get this thing while you're talking to the actors um uh, if the camera is left running if i don't say cut that the camera assistant every four or five seconds will say, still running, still rolling. Just a little reminder that I, as a professional, don't actually or unaware of whether my camera's on or off, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is just this annoying thing like, shut the up. I don't, I know it's rolling. Okay. And I just, and I don't care that you tell me that it's rolling. And I don't, I like the idea. I like the idea of not having to care about whether it's rolling, you know. And again, as I said, editors hate it because they'll all tell you that in digital productions, everyone shoots way more film because you just keep the camera rolling. And yes, that, uh, it, and yes, that is, you know, not great, but it's better for the final production. It's better for, I think better for performances and it's I love the idea that you don't if you set it up right you don't have to do slates and you can just you know make sure your sound guy is on board and your DPs are on board and you can just kind of almost re, you know you can look over at the sound guy are you rolling little nod yep good it's camera okay. your little thumbs up to little you know move your finger around in the air just say turn over please camera guy and just and just shoot uh, and then you really can do the in your own time rather than say action just let them 
start when they want to start, you know, and let them not have their sphincter tightened and let them not not be feel that pressure, you know. So the digital side of things is something I've always loved from from that point of view that it just changes the atmosphere of the set. Do you think there's all at all a difference um, when a crew's shooting with a 5D as opposed to to even like a red, like a kind of a psychological difference where um, people won't take it as seriously if if they're shooting on a 5D or, or a DSLR? Well, I'm not sure um, in the states whether this is any different or UK, but here I think we're getting a bit used, more used to 5Ds being the norm, and I think I think more. Above what cameras being used, people, what changes the way people, how people treat or how more or less seriously they take a shoot um, is the people running it and the, um, the crew and how they run it because, you know, there's plenty, I've worked with plenty of serious top-line film guys who uh happy to wave around a 5d and don't feel too embarrassed about it and just you know take it along in the stride and, and know that that's just hey that's just that's that's what we do now so i think the cue on how seriously or not to take a shoot comes from a lot of other things comes from production you know is their unit is is the producer looking after you is there um you know is there a coffee machine is there a unit guy uh, is there's you know uh, is there uh, walkie-talkies where we can you know communicate properly? Is the infrastructure there? You know, I think people more just know uh, take a, a shoot seriously based on who's running it and how well it's being run and the director involved and the cameraman. You know, and also take take it from the the content what you're shooting. You know, if you're shooting something a bit more retailly, then yeah, they're going to take it less less uh, seriously than when they look at the script and see this is a really nice interesting idea or it's great performance or it's a it's a a client that we like or you know so i think that they take those cues from from other stuff i think also these days everyone's still getting good reasonably good crew to run a 5d or whatever it be and if if you've picked the right guys usually the 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 camera may be the cheapest part of the whole equation that you're still going to have some reasonably good lenses on board and you still need a good sound guy and yeah people are definitely going to take it less seriously if you're if you've just got the you know the wireless mic on one guy and it's you know hooked right up to the camera and there's no sound guy and here's your cold you know oh when we wrap this shoot then you can go over there and uh, find your breakfast of the cold bacon and egg rolls that are there on the, on the apple box that, that the PA brought while everyone was shooting. And, you know, you have to work through the work through, work through breakfast and, and, um, it's a, it's a mess and no one can communicate. And so I think, yeah, people more, I think we've gone past the, uh, treating what the camera is because every, camera can you know lots of cameras can create really nice images and it's it comes down to who's creating them um and you know the the, the set that you're on to create them you were mentioning earlier how the advent of uh, of these dslrs has made it increasingly easier for uh, for people to obtain uh, beautiful images with their cameras uh you know, there's so much noise on the internet 
in terms of, of video yeah. content. How do you think you go about breaking out or, or getting noticed amongst all of that? Yeah, that's a tough one because there is definitely that, oh, well, I've got a 5D, so, oh, my my cousin's got a 5D, so he's going to shoot second unit on the next commercial or, you know, the production company buys a 5D and slaps the kit lens on it and great, we're now, we now have camera gear. Terrific. We don't need your equipment or we're not going to rent anything. We've got a 5D. I think, well, I think you have to find something that, uh, find something that, insp- that inspires you, you know. Um, it's hard to um, shoot something different. And I think if you're inspired by it, if it's a um, subject, just get out, yeah, just get out there and shoot something. And if it's something that, that inspires you, it'll be all the easier to get out there. It seems like when, you know, like, like uh, if you look on Vimeo, there'll be certain trends that you see, you know, where everybody's doing like something, like these beautiful kind of slider shots or, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. super shallow depth of field kind of stuff. And it, it, it sort of runs itself into the ground and then until somebody yeah. finds something else to do. It has to be, I think what has to be a part of it I think is you have to involve humans. <laughs> you know, humans are interesting and people are interesting. And I mean, I find time lapse just absolutely fantastic. But I can only probably watch five minutes of it before I'm looking for the fast forward button. And I don't mean in disrespect to anybody who does that. But I think it's beautiful and it has a place, but it shouldn't be the only subject. I think if you go without people, we're humans and we interact and we respond to, you know, from a child you respond to that face shape, you know, even as a baby, you just like you latch onto that shape that is two eyes and a mouth and you kind of, it's in your DNA to react to that. So I think you um, stick with people or, or if, if you're going to do great time lapse, it's fantastic. Intercut it with people or work, work people into it somehow. I think... Um, and not just someone standing there while you show how shallow the depth is or you do a slider shot of them. I don't know. Let's get some idea behind it. Ideas are what people respond to. Ideas are what, if you're trying to impress a director, it's very funny, you know, most DPs will probably tell you how they went to show their DP reel to a director and the director all the time was just saying, wow, great idea. Who directed that? Who directed that? Who directed that? You know, how did you shoot that? Tell me about it. You know, they're all about the not necessarily about the way it was shot. They're all, they're interested in why you shot it or who shot it or how it was achieved or the idea behind it is the intriguing thing. And that's what, I mean, slider stuff can look cool. Um, let's see them sliding in and out rather than left and right or upside down or use it as a crane or freaking, I don't know. What, what I do like about it is that, and what I, I guess, love about the whole 5d revolution thing is it's creating a whole bunch of new storytellers or it's 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 providing tools that makes your story more engaging by being more visually interesting it you know at the end of the day it yes the camera does count i'm sorry you know it doesn't matter what camera that's that's bullshit i call them bullshit for for years on that the camera does count you know if it, it what you're shooting on is important. The lens you choose is kind of important. It shouldn't be the only thing, but it is important. Um, if a piece of gear inspires you and doesn't 
get in your way and lets you do something new and interesting if it inspires you enough to get out of bed and go do something then that that is that that is really important the rc is a is a podcast you do with mike seymour and it ostensibly started off as a show covering everything red camera yeah but has become uh, so much more than that it's it's a show that just about everyone i work with in production listens to and uh, and i think of all the coverage i heard and read about the c300 I thought you guys easily did the best. Tell me a bit yeah. about how that transition uh, sort of came about. Was it that Red was just not coming out with stuff fast enough and you guys were like, well, well shit, we got to talk about something? In the first place, it's really because there wasn't anything around. And also, I mean, I had followed as, as part of that. I've always used digital um, whenever it was available, if I could. If I could use if it, was va if I could make it look like film in any way, in some way, I would use it. Um, I wasn't using it just because it's great. It's digital, fabulous. You know, I didn't sort of go for any of this sort of too much handy cam stuff. If it was good, if it was digital and I can make it look a bit like film, I was interested in it and, uh, you know, latched onto it. And I'd been interested in, I'd sort of followed this weird, somehow found out about this weird company called Red and just for a long time, there were just this little logo on at red.com. It just was a logo and just something interesting coming soon and something coming soon. And nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. And I was really interested in this camera company coming because um, they were going to do it different. And as it sort of evolved and we knew it was coming and the camera was starting to get out there, I was really interested in, in podcasting and hated having come, maybe having come from advertising, I just hated listening to the radio and you know, being, I guess, a bit more of a documentarian, I was really interested in podcasting and um, and only listened to it, didn't listen to radio because I hated ads and knew that there was, um, I guess, that found there was a space for someone to do something on this new camera that I thought would kind of change stuff you know it was going to be very different and there was really no mike mike seymour was 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 a mate of mine he used to, he used to do post on 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 spots for me um and uh i'd listened to his other podcasts and you know it was a lot of interesting information there but knew this camera was coming and knew no one's going to knew there was no there was no real way apart from red user of finding out how you worked with this thing how you post it how you shoot it um so i thought well hey mike do you want to do another podcast <laughs> um be great so because at that stage mike had literally i think the first red in, in australia one of the first you know camera number 22 he had the, f the first camera out there um and had that had that technical bent and um so i think it would, was a great um idea to start something where you could really because uh, there was a lot of noise and a lot of bullshit out there and we really wanted to just cut through all of that and just get the real world answers on how you work with this thing because you know if you think back you know the whole workflow was just you know, you just cut bits of tape together or you, you know, you process the film and then you, you know, you avid it and then you online it. There was, this was changing, this camera uh, and subsequently we didn't know, you know all the stuff that was to come after that really changed the way we were going to do post-production and how we we're going to shoot stuff and how you're going to work with stuff on set and it was going to change 
your the, what your crew did. So yeah, there was no there was a real need for that. And um, uh, shortly after that, you know, the the five D thing came about, and that was had its whole set of whole. That was a whole bunch of new um, stuff to try and work out, and a whole bunch more gotchas and 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 yeah. So we basically sort of evolved as the industry evolved a bit, really. And I think what we still need to keep uh, um, our sort of mindset is that we still want to be about the craft. And although, you know, the technical, as I say, the, the camera does count and the technicalities do count because you don't want to screw up, you want to get that next gig. But the the craft is what we're trying to bring it always back to about why you chose this particular camera or you know how you got the interesting technique or how does this affect the way you do things or how are you doing things differently now because of this particular bit of gear yes it's about gear um but it's about um how you can be more creative with it i guess so a lot of the guests that you guys uh, book on the show are um you know sometimes they're I'll hear people I'm not familiar with uh, until I hear the show, um, and I'll often become interested in them after after hearing you or, or Mike uh, interview them. Uh, yeah. H- how do you go about picking uh, the guests that you have? Well, I guess it has to be someone that I'm interested in or a project that I'm interested in that they've shot. Uh, it has to be the fact that I want to know, you know, like I guess this is why you started this show is you want to know. You, you want, you know, the resource isn't necessarily out there or you want to know uh why people do what they do. So it was, I guess it's that born out of um, project I want to know more about and information isn't necessarily out there. So yeah, it has to be people that, that whose work I'm interested in or a project that's, that has inspired me or, 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 or people, you know, um, ask us about it you know, or people bring it to, you know, we've got a great audience who will, ping us and tell us that, um, uh, hey, here's this interesting story. Or, And we've made, you know, a lot of, I've made a lot of fantastic content con- contacts out of doing, and not just contacts but friendships and um, really established some great uh, links for the show going forward or just me work-wise, you know, getting heads up on gear or getting early tests of gear or getting loaners of stuff to, to, to play with and so that when it does actually is out, I, I know what, what tool I can grab for, for my, my job. So it's not – it's kind of this little hobby that got out of control and it's been <laughs> – it's been really good. It's been – it's been it's been a, a great a great thing to do. It's really really hard to try and find the time to do it amongst everything else. That's that's the toughest thing. It's getting harder and harder to to find the time. But you know you have the responsibility to 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 keep keep doing it. And you know it's great. I, I love doing it. But it's definitely one of those. It's not my as you can tell. This is not my day job. <laughs> So speaking about your day job, and I notice uh, in a lot of your spots you do a lot of comedic stuff, but you also do a, some really nice visual storytelling work. Um, in the U.S., there's a lot of emphasis on on specializing in a particular mm. genre in commercial mm. production, like you know, like car spots or or comedy with dialogue yeah. and so on. Is that as prevalent in Australia? Um, it's a weird thing. The whole 
you know, guiding your reel and steering your reel and, and it's, it's definitely you get known for, you know, you get known for what's on your reel, obviously, and you get known for what you're good at. Everyone does a whole, everyone does a range of, of, of stuff. I've always more gravitated more towards the idea or real people or non-actors or, you know, celebrities getting performances out of people that don't necessarily, you know, acting isn't their day job. So I, I, I guess that's why I've sort of gone more towards the, you know, interested in the, the documentarian kind of side of things, I guess. But um, uh, you, you, I mean, you get what you give, you know. You know, if you put that on your reel, that's what you get and you get more of that. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily better at getting a performance out of a non-actor than somebody else. It's just... It, it, it's just, it's kind of like this, you know, it, it's that saying of life, um, life's what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. You know, you just, your reel kind of has this life of its own. You get one good job, that one job that is of a particular genre and if that's really popular and people like it, then people give you more of that. And then six months down the track, you turn around and you go, wow, I've got a whole reel of this and now I'm that guy. Now I'm the, you know, the guy that makes cats play pianos or whatever you know what i mean i'm I, yeah you kind of the real is something t- that happens to you while you're busy making other plans <laughs> so it's good to make other plans and 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 get out there and shoot if you're not happy with what you're doing or if you'd love to explore other things go out there and shoot it anyway and put it on the reel it's not that hard these days and and you can you can kind of steer the big ship a little bit. It's it's like you know, like the big oil tanker that you have to make. It, it takes forever to turn it. You know, it, you have to kind of really wrench the reel and sort of force it a bit. It's very, it's it it it's definitely hard to do. It's not what I the comedic thing just just happened. You know, I just did my first few campaigns were for. Um, uh, a uh, a ski field uh, here called Threadbow, and they used to do a ton of um, commercials. Partly because there was never had they never had any budget to make any commercials, right? And it was always you just got tickets. You got you got accommodation during the ski season, and and that was your payment. And so everyone was keen to work on it, but because the client didn't have any budget, they never really got. And we just made a ton of a ton of good, simple ideas, and we would give them like seven, eight, nine commercials. And a because they were getting it for virtually nothing, and b because they got so many commercials, they never really interfered or complained. Or you know, it was like, well, I really love those two, but that other one, that's a bit weird. Whatever. But hey, I've got another five that I love here, so whatever. And hey, you're doing it for virtually nothing, so can't really complain. So we, it was a really good creative uh, start because we weren't being, you know, the, the ideas didn't get screwed up because the client wanted to rewrite them because they were never really involved. We were just doing it for fun and we were doing it. It was kind of like this pet project that they kind of paid the expenses on. So, and they happened to be really popular and they, 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 they spent money. And I think the, and there was always a link between somehow between the client and the they they got a whole bunch of media anyway, so they always got a lot of um, rotation around the, the ski time. So everyone was really and I did that for three or four or five years or so, and they were really you know really great spots. And so I got kind of known as sort of you know doing a bit more comedy and I don't know. I think one year I might have had a 
kid or two on my reel and then I got known as doing a bit more kids than kids and humor and stuff so that, that still kind of that still kind of hangs in there a little bit but um with a bit more of the sort of 5d-ish or more documentary kind of honest stuff creeping into the reel I'm getting a bit more known as someone who will go and shoot and direct and do more minimal uh minimal crew or you know jump on a plane and go do something with a crew of three and and do a bit more long form or do something that's not necessarily 30 seconds or a bit more out of the box i think although i think everyone's coming a bit more like that really the 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 whole 5d thing is i, I say the 5d thing but that can be that can mean anything right everyone knows that when we say the 5d thing we're talking about whatever we're talking about a an epic and a crew of two or a um a 7d or whatever 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 it be f3 whatever something small and compact that you can chuck in a backpack and and something that you don't have to have um uh, trucks going down the street to 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 feed that machine so um yeah, I think everyone it's sort of going that way. I'm seeing this real shift to that stuff, and it's it's great. It's a really great change to, um, and it's 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 advertisers and agencies are embracing it. I they're embracing. They're finally starting to get the idea that reality is more powerful than, um, than than anything they can write. And that humans will come up with something far more creative than any one of their scripts, and that chosen right and shot right, natural light has far more impact and can be far more beautiful than anything. Well, than than most anything you can create with with a lighting truck in my book. I uh, I I know that's you know that's really generalizing, and there's a lot of um amazing dps who create fantastic stuff you know there's a lot of stuff you have to light but for this particular sort of genre um it's it's not a necessity and cre- creatives are embracing it and clients are slowly being dragged kicking and screaming towards this more real honest finally they start to have the ability to to not shoot ads uh, or not make their ads look like ads because they're not. Everyone's getting more towards this branded content and uh, more doco-based or mini little mini stories, little mini humanity backstories um, with a little, you know, the uh, um, a, a supplier of your company and this is their little backstory and this is how you're helping their community or um you know the little employee um vignettes on 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 your employees and their thoughts on the company or uh, so and people are doing more wanting to apply this look to stuff that doesn't go for 30 seconds necessarily they're wanting to they know when you're out and about and part of the whole shooting style is that you don't just set up and shoot so, you know someone standing in front of the camera doing 30 seconds of dialogue or two people in the kitchen with a breakfast cereal talking, you know, doing 30 seconds of words. You more starting to do um, a bit more, you know, chucking an interview and then some time lapse and then a, um, some beautiful footage intermixed with um, um, 
their own words. And that inevitably gives you results that are tough to cut down to 30 seconds, but uh, it's very easy to then provide them with, hey, here's this two-minute version, which is they'll fund for you to put on their website, um, not on air, and then you can put it on your reel. You know, so I, I think that that the process lends itself to shooting stuff beyond thirty seconds as well, and, um, and there, you know, the proliferation of stuff for that starting to more and more put stuff on their on their website, and I, I just really like the, I like I like the way things are going at the moment. It's interesting. Um, I don't know whether you're seeing that over there. I don't know. I'm I'm seeing more and more of it here, and I'm I'm sure it, it can't be. It can't just be us. Yeah, well, there's a lot of you know a lot of made for web content where I think you have a lot more freedom than if you're if you're shooting something for uh, you know a thirty second or fifteen second spot for for TV. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies who are looking for you know longer form content now. So it's and and a lot of companies are are using uh, you know using these these cheaper uh, technologies like like the five D. But and and also you know I've noticed um, in in filmmaking there's there's a, a bit of a shift going in some places like um, you know like Edward Burns uh, just did a, a movie uh, Newlyweds that he, yeah. he shot on the 5D and um, is uh, doing a bunch of interviews in different places where he, he mentioned that it, he he made the film for uh, for nine thousand dollars yeah um, and which actually I think is a, is a bit of a misnomer because um, yeah. you know he. Sure. Uh, he mentions too that the post production costs like a hundred thousand or something. So, <laughs> so I mean, that, that actually that drives me crazy. By the way, uh, because everywhere really? I I see him talking about you know like he was on um, uh, Jeff Goldsmith as a podcast uh, that where he he goes into uh, a lot of detail and it was almost like pulling teeth to get um, to get him to admit that uh, that it was more than five, more than nine thousand uh, dollars that there was a, a post process you know to, yeah. Uh, if the marketing of your film is all based on how much it costs to make it, then maybe there's something wrong. I think, um, I mean, it's helping him gain a little bit of a new audience by, you know, some of the other podcasts are interested in, in speaking to him and there's a lot, a lot of sort of filmmakers are interested in how do you do it for that money because the answer is you don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, it might cost 9000 but no one got paid. Come on, people want to eat. It's great that, I mean, it's great if you're an actor and you can, you know, one actor holds this camera while you shoot one angle and then you all swap and do the other angle. That's, it's it's a great idea and if it gets you done, terrific. But, you know, it's not it's not a product, it's not a way that's going to suit everybody. Well, his, um, his model, I think, is essentially, uh, you know, everybody's getting a piece of the back end and everybody's kind of doing these, uh, the, these movies with him as a sort of side project and the, the goal is that if one of them hits, then they're going to get a healthy check kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's creating great, you know, interesting content that's, you know, story-based. The pluses are, you know, that it is story-based and that it's um, it's not, you know, it's not getting a hooked up on, on, on the technology or the way it was made. It's, it's, it's all comes, at the end of the day, it still does come down to story and characters and, and, and humans interacting so yeah i mean it is definitely we we would definitely love to try we're trying to get him on the show and, and talk to him about it i'd love we i'm very interested in 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 you know that whole back-end model and and just 
video on demand and iTunesing it, and um, it it he still has to get out there and promote it and be his own pitch man for it. But um, yeah, look, it's going to work for it's going to work for him. I'm sure it's terrific. It's a terrific way of doing it. And if you can, the trick is to not have the way it's made bring you out of the movie of watching the movie. You know, you don't want it to be so... I'm not saying this is the case with Newlyweds. Um, but, uh, yeah, you don't want it to be so cheap that you're conscious of it being a cheap, that you're conscious of, the, you know... He, he, you don't want every pitch, every pitch that he does to be mentioning how cheap it was made for and that to be his, his story and his lead because then everyone who's watching the film is conscious of that. You don't want to be so conscious of the whole film every time about how it was made and, and, and be taken out of the movie. You know, I mean, I, I find that I'm a little bit that way. I get sort of taken out of the, taken out of the, out of the film by being conscious of how something is made and whether it be because it's really expensive or because it's really cheap. So, I don't know. I love. I love. I love to see him, and I'm sure he's promoting the film based on its content, not it, its its method of creation. Because you know, you want to just watch it because it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it'll be yeah. interesting to see where video on demand and all that goes. Because right now, I I think it really um, it's very beneficial for a filmmaker like um, Edward Burns or somebody like maybe Kevin Smith who has an audience already. You know, who has a bit of an audience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they can, you know, they can reach their audience on Twitter or wherever, and and let them know that oh, here my, you know, my movie's on iTunes or whatever. But what about somebody who's who doesn't have that? Yeah, I'd be interested to see, you know, what the numbers are and stuff like that. Does people do people actually, if it's successful, what is everybody getting their reasonable slice of that pie? You know, are you, are they? Is it is it paying off at the back end that? you know, people getting paid what they should be, you know. Uh, I mean, no, it's very hard to try and get try and get um, money up for a project for sure. And uh, if you can not worry about that and just go ahead and shoot it. I think what was interesting about his process um, is that they would shoot because they won't really have like this is the three weeks we're going to shoot the whole thing in these three weeks. They do a few days. They'd shoot it, they'd edit that whole scene together, see how it's working, see how it's playing. What else do we need to do? Do we need that other scene now? Does this tell everything we need to do? Do we need a bit of backstory on that now? And they get that sort of ability, which you don't have on a normal project to, don't always have on a project to be able to cut and stop, start and cut as you go and sort of adapt the film to the edit as it's in process in the background so it's it's an interesting model from that point of view that you don't have the pressure of production because you've got a certain amount of budget everyone's you know all the crew are all you know the crew can't stop and start but if you don't really have a crew that's great they can you know you can work like that i like it creatively from that point of view that you can uh, it can evolve as it goes and that's gonna whatever it is it's gonna make for a better product in the end. I think that's the part that really excites me, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, um, maybe what John Cassavetes was doing when he was starting out directing stuff. Just the freedom you have with, um, you know, at the time he was shooting a 16mm and things like that. Mm. But with a 5D, I mean, or, you know, or a comparable technology, 
there's even more freedom, you know, because you're not wasting film. It seems to be, I think what's key to the whole 5D thing, I'm going to harp on it, but it, it's, it's inspiring. It's inspired people, it inspired me to get out and sort of change the way I do things. And that led to stuff I could put on the reel and that led to other projects that, um, you know, were, were different to what I had on the reel. So it was terrific from that point of view. I love the fact that it's, uh, these new cameras are inspiring people to um, get out of bed and go shoot something. And it's creating a whole new generation of um, storytellers and a whole new generation of, I mean, I guess cameras have always have done that, I suppose, but it's, it's so adaptable to, you know, really strong visual stuff or to storytelling. And, you know, a lot of cameras have just been great at one thing. Like they could do, you know, they could do um, great visuals, but, you know, they didn't have sound or they were, they were always crappy at one thing. But a lot of these, you know, these cameras now are getting really, really, really good at doing everything. Right. Can do stop motion, can do infrared, can do time lapse, can do dialogue, can do, you know, and small and light. And they don't you don't have to save up to buy the role of film to put in it and then process it. And you don't have to know five other people who have different skill sets. You know, you can cut it for virtually nothing. And, and, and you know, everyone's got a computer that's probably capable of, of cutting this stuff. And it's really, you know, more, it brings it all back to, you know, everyone, everyone being able to uh, look at all, tackle all the skills you know in the film days you had to know someone you couldn't just shoot it you had to know someone who could you had to have the money to buy the film you had the money money to process it and then um, once you cut it you couldn't just you know put it on your projector at home you had to you know had someone who had the gear to transfer it or to cut it on a bench and Right, and and I, I mean, I see a lot of exciting stuff in in the work that, <clears throat> excuse me, in the work that you're doing lately, like the um, the Mining Council of Australia campaign, uh, which which was shot on the on the five D, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that job was um, just came up really quickly. It was one of those a lot of those politically kind of driven stuff. It sort of comes up really quickly. They've got a lot of money but zero time, and you got to go now. And I think I previously shot a whole bunch of stuff i'd started to do some 5d work and just showed it to people when we were in an online session for a real commercial or when we were sort of you know in a meeting or whatever and showing show there's a bit of reference and so people kind of this, that particular project was involving just going to the ends of the earth and doing jumping in planes and having zero gear zero room to have big gear and um uh, wanted to get great, sort of reasonably truthful images and do dialogue and and be portable and 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 have like I think we had I think I had like another five or six teams all out there trying to do it all really quickly so we could bring a whole bunch of stories back um, within say a week. So just because I people had known I had my own kit and had my own gear and knew what I was doing and but also had the non-actor real you know i think i sort of got that gig because of a combination of what i'd done before but also the stuff that i'd done the fact that i'd done 
some stuff with 5D bef- uh, 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 as well. And really quick turnaround too. Literally by the time you come back, you have to get the seven crews together and cut all the footage in, you know, literally whatever, 40, 48 hours, which we couldn't have done with, with, with film or even if it was red really with all the sort of post, the post stuff does slow you up a little bit. So it kind of, yeah, it was the right tool for that job. What's the difference for you in, in directing non-actors as opposed to actors? You mentioned that you, you kind of prefer directing uh, people who aren't necessarily actors. Yeah, well, I guess it's all with actors. I prefer to, and the same with all the collaboration, be it DP, actors, whatever. I won't really tell people what to do. I'll sort of give them an idea of what I like, but not... I think if you're going to tell people what to do, you might as well just do it yourself. You know, I think the idea is to get that collaboration, get get their idea of something. You can, if you don't like it, then you can kind of steer it or change it a bit, but don't go in with a really heavy brief that is very super overly descriptive. And unless you're James Cameron, just uh, who just knows everything about everything and is completely right 100% of the time, um, get you've employed these people because of how you, they look or their previous work or, you know, because they're not a robot. So get, get their, get their take on it first and give them a rough idea of the scene, but really love to just see what they do with it first and take something from that. You know, you can take the best of that. Um, and say, I love this bit, do more of this. And, you know, so it starts off, but it should start off with more of their, get their take on it and see what they do before you start telling them what to do. Same with editors. I don't really like the editor necessarily to have a storyboard. I would love to them to um, come up with their idea on how the footage can come together because, you know, if I just give them a storyboard, all I'll get back is my storyboard, you know, cut together. It would be great to get their impression on. And and any good editor will, will sort of ignore that anyway and, and and do their own thing anyway. They'll they'll mad if they don't, you know. With non-actors, I guess acting is really you want you want to tell them how to react rather than, you know, give them something to react to, especially with kids or, you know, give them, give them something to bounce off, give them um, um, an idea to that they can relate to, something that they can react to rather than act to. Um, it's it's very hard. It's a very hard process getting actor, non-actors to do stuff. Um, you're usually looking for people who are pretty outgoing anyway and who have a bit of personality. You know, if someone's just dead, you know, straight out of the box, it's really hard to get them, you know, yeah. to get them um, up and running and get the blood pumping. So you're after people who are a little bit more interesting anyway and have a bit of a character. You want to start with a character and start with an interesting person. You have to cast rather than get them to act uh, into a character or do something other than they're not, you have to cast the people that um, that that are what you imagined or, you know, just have have come to the, come get out of the cab with that interesting character, you know, and then you're not getting them to act, you're getting them to just be themselves. But often you don't have the chance to cast them, that just this is the person, this is the guy, this is, you know, um, and then you're often in those situations, you're often not asking them to do something other than 
other than who they actually are anyway. So I, I think the trick is, is to not um, try and get them to be something that they're not or not choose people to try and make them something that they're not. You know, mm-hmm. you can't really get them to pretend to be someone else. So you either choose them because they look interesting and, 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 and they are who they are and they say it the way they say it. It's a tough one, non-actors acting. I try not to do it too much. I try and make them just react to something that's happening rather than pretendies. Do you find that sometimes there is a bit of uh, manipulation so to speak, that, that goes on when you're directing a non-actor. Uh, I, I find that when I'm directing someone who isn't an actor, that sometimes the best thing to do is to tell them, uh, you know, oh, we're just doing a run-through, and you keep the camera rolling, then uh, they, they tend to be a little bit more relaxed than they otherwise would be. Yeah. Or if uh, if they need to smile, you know, rather than me telling them to smile, maybe I'll, I'll say something stupid, uh, you know, which happens often anyway, and, and, and they'll smile naturally. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go back to the why I like digital thing, which is the non the rolling when they don't think you're rolling or or just re- shooting rehearsals when you're, you know, they think you're just mucking around. So I think what was always lovely about it was that you could always, with the digital, you can you don't, um, you can just roll. I mean, you can do this with film cameras, of course, and it comes down to having really great somebody behind the camera who knows what you're, um looking for or has an eye, keeps an eye out for the stuff that happens between the takes, you know, or the looks of the, I've, I've cut some spots, particularly with this applies, particularly with kids, um, where reactions to a piece of dialogue is nowhere near, is, is, is completely not the, not the reaction that was intended. It's, it's an embarrassed look because one of the other kids made a mistake or it's um, you asked them a stupid question or whatever that comes down to the, the reacting versus the acting comment before is that you um, get them to uh, react to something that happened versus um, acting and pretending that something happened. You really need to have somebody um, behind the camera, uh, maybe yourself or someone who, uh, who knows what they're doing to keep an eye out for this kind of stuff and, you know, keep the, just keep a lookout for, or have multiple cameras where one person can be on someone doing something and then the other one can be just roaming, looking, looking, looking for looks and looking for the stuff that happens between the takes. And, uh, and, um, if you want someone to break up, it's because someone did something unexpected or, or did something different or, or, or you keep that camera rolling after I say cut and then they all have a bit of a laugh because they did something wrong during it or, you know, or the, or to have another camera on, on someone who didn't think they were on camera, you know, so there's lots of tricks really. And partly it's helped along by the, the digital thing can help it if you you know if you've got a camera that, that that can be or a second or a B camera or whatever that can be small portable, no one you don't have a, a you know marks on the floor and tape focus marks and you know the whole massive crew by the numbers thing where it's that camera is a little bit more covert and no one quite knows when they're on camera. Um, uh, uh, 
I'm trying to think of the name of the director. Okay, so you can prompt me. Um, Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, uh, Barry Toys. Levinson. Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, Barry Levinson's perfect at this, is that he will not uh he, he his style is to if you've seen seen stuff like good morning vietnam and tin man and you know all his stuff where he'll, he, he will basically have two or three cameras on really long lenses he'll back it off so no one really knows when this is your close-up or this is your wide shot or whatever nobody so everybody's really and this is more pertains more to actors right um, but it can also pertain to you know to non-actors that nobody knows when it's their close-up. So everybody is acting to, you know, their best ability because they never know when the camera's right in there or wide and they never really know whether this is the sh- – this is – it's nobody's close-up and it's everyone's close-up. So they um, – and also what he does scene-wise is never really give anybody a really strong script I mean, there is a script, but they don't really obsess about it. They have an idea of what a scene entails. In this scene, your character's trying to do this, and their motivation is this, this, and this, and your character is trying to um, get out of a situation, and then and, and this is why, and then and action. And, you know, he obviously hires actors who are really great at improv, and really it's just long lenses backed off, and this is the idea of the scene, and just give it to me. So, and obviously, people like Robin Williams and and stuff that he he hires a lot are, are really amazing at it. And Dan DeVito and all those great actors that can react to this. You have to have the right cast. Uh, but but you know, actors really really enjoy it and rise to that occasion where they're not just following the script. They they're stretching themselves. A lot of your work is naturalistic, performance based uh, kind of stuff. The Mitsubishi spot on your website is really well done and, and more of a of a traditional car spot. Can you talk a little bit about that one? We did this uh, great stuff on the docks um, at the which you know we had to be I think in in Adelaide to shoot that, which is a little bit as soon as you get out. I'm sure same there. You know as soon as you get out of the bigger cities or the more, more film-based cities because a little approvals and where you can and can't shoot gets a lot easier and um there's no way i mean the docks is kind of like shooting on the docks it's like it's like customs you know it's it's your 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 kind of air side it you you, you, you know you're you're wandering around containers that haven't had customs clearance and you know so it was a great place to go shoot and um uh, I love cars and to be able to just shoot around these interesting containers and um, drive on, drive through the, under those container loading cranes and and, and try, you know I, I just I love getting on a tracking vehicle and shooting shooting cars and good stuff. I don't do enough of it and so I just I keep the odd one or two or sort of car commercials on the reel somewhere. I don't really it's ancient and I don't really like it. But it's it's there. Just again, it's trying to. Um, I do want to. That's why I probably should go out and shoot some car stuff. Um, <laughs> as long as there's as long as there's humans involved, but I should right. go out and shoot something just so I can have some more current car stuff. Because you always get asked, and you know, car f- stuff is always you know, or you always get asked. You know, have you got this? Have you got kids? Have you got you know? Sure. Have you got a baby that plays a piano? Or you know, have you got a 
right? You know, because a lot, get... a lot of people want to see the the uh, the spot that you're going to do for them yep. already on your exactly. reel, kind of thing. Completely done, finished on the reel already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It plays a piano. Yeah, the baby's playing a piano, but well, we're really looking for a harpsichord. You know, <laughs> so yeah, they just kind of like they're not happy to engage people until they see exactly you doing that exact spot. It's just kind of kind of silly, really. Um, I think that is changing. I think too, which is good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and shooting cars is kind of it's it, uh, like a whole genre unto itself. Do, do you have any advice when it comes to um, to lighting and, and shooting cars? Uh, cars is really cars. Cars are hard because that's sort of changing a bit too. That um, uh, you used to be able to just shoot at dawn and get up and have the schedule just to be able to shoot at dawn and the whole sort of backlit car at dawn at a thousand frames a second as it comes around the crest on a thousand three hundred six hundred mil lens it used to be all great and cars have got a little bit more honest these days and cars have got a little bit more about um again it comes a bit more about a, a story you can't just have necessarily 60 seconds of or 30 seconds of, of 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 running footage there always has to be effects involved or 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 dialogue or uh, uh, something other than just boring car footage um long lens cars looks really good on, cars look a lot better on longer lenses uh running footage get you know if you if at all possible get stabilized heads get stabilized cranes where you can uh, really get a ton of different angles with one rig you don't have to stop and start you don't have to sort of the whole machine of shooting cars is, is really fiddly and time confusing time consuming and changing a car rig from one angle to another if you can get a piece of kit that lets you um, put the camera in 10 different ways which is usually a stabilized you know a big like a Russian arm or a big um, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a stabilized crane where you can do top shots, running shots, side shots, profile, and go various speeds, and and where you're not sort of worried too much about wobbles. Then, um, and also, you know, throw throw them around a bit. Everyone's sick of sort of boring, staid running footage, just slow stuff. Variety, you know, variety really. A lot of people just do a whole bunch of five shots cut together it all pretty much look the same so yeah getting get cars and reflections long lens different light um there's never enough time to shoot this stuff anyway so give yourself a piece of kit that will let you have the variety without having to sh shift the camera in 10 different positions you know if, again like this uh, like a, a big long arm stabilized arm and stuff like that are really good for that but um uh, yeah, I don't. Every car job's really different. Sometimes they've got effects involved. Sometimes it's 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 a lot of dialogue and less car and vice versa. So, yeah, I don't know. I I, I want to do more of them, but I haven't I haven't done enough to be spouting off as a as a car guy. I always did cars when there was an idea involved, you know, um, or dialogue or a gag or something. Let me ask you about the, the Pfizer ad you did, which has a has a, a gigantic, like, literal elephant in the room. Um, yes. What What were the logistics of, of working with a with a big scary elephant? Um, logistics were that we had to build a set. This is an elephant inside uh, a uh, doctor's office. We had to build a set, obviously, in two halves. So it has to be big enough to be able to. Elephants don't like to be. Well, the first of all, the thought thought was, oh, do we do CGI elephant? Yeah, we don't really have enough money for that, and it's never going to look right. So, what the hell? Let's just have 
you know, they happen to have one reasonably decent elephant here um, that we could use. But it was, um, they don't like to be, feel trapped or in, ca in, 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 um, blocked in in any way. You always had to give them a view of the door. I'm the same way. So, so yeah, you always had to live, they could always see where their truck was or where their, you know, their hay bale was, you know, have a sort of, you couldn't sort of, so putting them in a room, we had to basically do a room in two halves. So we'd always, you know, we'd back it into the room at, um, um, for, for one angle and then um, the reverse angle would sort of, you know, always dress it in. So there was always only half a room and just do things very carefully, very slowly. We Again, we shot digitally for that one because we didn't want to be, if the elephant was doing something fantastic, we didn't want to, if it was doing something fantastic, you just want to say, okay, do it again, do the dialogue again, this time say it a different way. Or And, and the elephant would just be, the elephant was just, you know, they're just, they're just hoovers for food, right? They just want to just sniff stuff out. It's just so you put we put carrots in his hair and some biscuit down his shirt or whatever, and really, really strong things. Really, I mean, it sounds pretty obvious, but the the trunk itself is phenomenally strong. Could just snap your neck if you wanted to. So, casting some actors that were reasonably brave and um, have the ability to keep rolling. Yeah, doing stuff. For real, I think more than setting stuff up. It's um. Oh, I think uh, it has a whole different dimension to the to the actor's performance too. You know, when he has oh, a a, a big, uh, you know, when, when he has that elephant right behind him and, and on top of him, basically. We thought about: Do you get, you know, a, a do you puppeteer the trunk? Because the whole idea was that he's we don't reveal the elephant until the end and it's just someone who's reacting to noise and bumps and being ruffled and, you know, being pushed around and being, we thought, do you have a guy behind the guy with a little, you know, with a puppet trunk and, and said, no, well, let's, 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 we didn't even have that in standby. Let's just, let's just see how we go. And it just provided some, it was a hysterical shoot because the, um, Elephant was really shoving him around, trying to get the carrot in his pocket or the biscuit in his hair or whatever, because literally they were just f f hell and high water to get that piece of food. You know, not that it was starved or anything, but they just, you know, like any animal, just like to eat. <laughs> so it was definitely shoving him around a bit, and you know, him trying to do performances and have me telling him, you know try different things while this elephant is, uh, you know, rummaging through, ripping. We had multiple shirts because it would just like, elephant would just like shove his trunk right into the guy's shirt and just, bing, all the buttons would pop everywhere and he'd just like have to just keep going. And we just, it was, I mean, a lot of the time we didn't even really need to have that piece of footage. I just thought it was hysterical to just keep rolling and just see what he'd do. Sure. <laughs> it just, it was about your own amusement. At some point. As, to, to some degree, yes. Yeah. How much uh, how much creativity are you usually uh, kind of allowed to have uh, when you're doing a commercial? Well, that that creativity obviously starts at when you're writing the treatment. I would get sent a script and be one of two, three, you know, four, generally three or four people pitching to do it, and um, I would then you know probably do a go see or on over the phone becoming more and more popular to just do a phone briefing with them where they take you through why this script came about, what the client's trying to achieve, um, 
uh, how they see it. Um, and often with this stuff, they've had to live with an idea for six months, sometimes 18 months, where it's gone backwards and forwards to the client. And every time it's gone backwards and forwards to the client, the client's changed something or just like as can happen in an edit, they'll slowly strip away all the humanity before until by the time you get involved as a director, they are completely over it. They've been, they've had their will broken by the client. The idea is a shadow of its former self and uh, they, whether they say it or not, are often looking for someone to make it fun again or to make it interesting again or to convince them that, you know, as long as you do it honestly, that, that you can make this interesting, you can make this good, it can be good. You know, sometimes if you get down and out about a job as a director and you think, oh, this is going to be shit and you turn up on the set and you're kind of moaning, you really don't want to be there. And, you know, it just can sometimes just take a DP to just say, man, it's going to be really great. I'm going to do this and be good. And, you know, you can just kind of be enthused about it again. If through somebody else's enthusiasm for the job, it doesn't have to be this way. We can, we can, we can, we can make this, you know, we can make this better than how you think. Okay, good, great. People respond to that stuff, you know. So I think sometimes by the time you get to, by the time you get to that stage, with them they're over it and they're really looking for someone to take it and convince them it can be good convince them that they haven't wasted you know six to 18 months of their life and that they won't be embarrassed by the end product and and i think also uh sometimes they're looking for someone to be the bastard to be the person who says no we're not going to do it this way and they're looking for somebody to stand up to the client sometimes and say, look, you know, this isn't the way you really want to do it. You want to do it this way, which may be exactly how they want to do it. But the client talked them out of doing that way six months ago. So um, they're sometimes looking for someone fresh who doesn't have a nine to five relationship with this client and doesn't have a contracted permanent position than an agency at risk you're someone who's just coming in for that project and coming out and it's sort of okay for you to have that you know to be the bastard to come in and say actually no you know we're not going to do it this way i will do it this way because this is better or um, i'm not involved i'm not being involved um so they kind of respond to that sometimes but it is a real balancing act in that that thing of of wanting to not put your stamp on it, but you're, you're the balancing act of wanting to add something to the project but not changing it so much that you don't get the gig. You know, the, ultimately you kind of mostly want to get the gig. So it's all about wanting to put some creativity in there that takes it to a new place but not adding so much or changing it so completely that, um, you know, they, they just everyone gets cold feet. So generally they will respond more to the former than the latter. They generally respond to more people putting ideas in and how about this and how about that and throwing ideas at it. And at least shows it shows enthusiasm, it shows creativity and they don't have to use them necessarily just because you write it on the paper and say it'd be great, what if? Doesn't mean they, they can they can pick and choose and say we love this bit but forget that bit. And um, so the create it's often good to if you read a script and think well gee it's better if we do it this way to not pussyfoot around and to not just give them back what 
they sent you just rewritten in a different way. They, you, it's better to actually write down, you think it's better this way and why, you know, go ahead and, and change it, add stuff to it. If you want, you know, if you think it's going to be better, do it, offer it up. They can always just say, no, we love your creativity and we love you real. We'd love you to do it, but we can't really do it that way. We, but you know, it doesn't hurt to, it doesn't hurt to offer it up. The level of creativity is, uh, sometimes, and I try to really avoid these jobs and maybe people know that my through my disdain filming the last one that they don't give me another one is that um often jobs will come out of six months of research and you can't even change a word on the script you can't change an and to a that you can't change you know a thing and really all that they need is a dop and someone with a stopwatch and an editor you know they don't need a director and really the director is just a glorified first assistant director just make sure you know people say their lines and and do the bidding of video village just run like a little lap dog from video village to set and just do what they say um that kind of stuff is just soul crushingly just just life you just feel life ebbing away as as, <laughs> as you shoot that kind of shit and it's really hard to 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 get through the day and look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day sometimes i have very little control sometimes you know you completely change the the, the way completely 180 how they thought of it but just trust what be guided by your instincts if you think something is not right just completely don't go ahead and shoot it because you don't want to change it because you don't want to rock the boat because you want to get the gig how important is it for you to do uh some of the the more personal projects that you're you're working on like the sea pools uh documentary or, or moving day or, or something like that yeah uh look it's it's really really it's really important really um are you able to find time to to do that in in between doing um kind of your more um you know the your bread and butter kind of work it's really the the short film stuff is a lot harder because it's a much more involved timeline you know of casting and shooting and locations and it's much bigger mostly particularly moving day was but um i think uh yeah, it's 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 really changed. You know, it's kind of redirected me a little bit and kind of freshened up. You know, I was just feeling a bit sort of in a in a rut and just doing the same old stuff and you know feeling pretty sort of bored with my career. And then I guess the whole part of the whole five D thing was just got me out of bed in the morning and went off and did something that was interesting. Just started off being a camera test and ended up being. Um, well, as yet unfinished documentary on uh, the sea pools here in 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 Australia in Sydney. In what are the sea pools for people who don't know? Well, uh, okay, I I really actually after I started the project realised this is not this is a pretty unique to Australia thing, um, which I didn't realise. In uh, it's kind of like Yahoo serious in, in that way. <laughs> Please don't mention Yahoo. In I guess these were really really popular in and a lot of them were sort of built in the 30s 40s 50s that basically they would um, make use of the the sea and build build a sort of concrete frame out in the ocean well not out in the ocean at the rocks by the, the beginning of the water that is constantly is basically a pool that is at, at the water's edge which is constantly refreshed with seawater it is being able to swim in the sea 
without having um, the risk of uh, getting out of the pool with less limbs than you started, being be, be it <laughs> shark attack or whatever. I, I guess it, it's it's a more contr- – and not being sort of slammed with waves all the time. So it's really in high tide they fill up with and fill up with, with water and then in low tide there's still a nice sort of contained place to swim. And those were massively um, popular and they're, they're everywhere. Almost every suburb has has one. Uh, up and down the the the, the coast of uh, New South Wales, or mainly Sydney, and uh, they're all different. They're all built differently. They're all orientated to the sun differently. They all have different kind of ways of different sort of construction methods and different um, sort of people who frequent them. And but man, it's it's seawater, and you know it, it's Australia, but it does get cold in winter. You know this this you have to, and there's people that swim religiously through through the winter, um, all every every day and get up doing it and do it early, and 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 it's a real you know like any kind of sort of health or sport thing. It's one of those things that becomes their sort of mini religion, really. Um, but apart from the human side of it and why people get up there and do what they do, it's also it's just a beautiful place to shoot and just gorgeous light. And I've just always loved those, those um, you know, loved them as a uh, as I've occasionally shot on on them in on commercials um, as an assistant and always wanted to go back and shoot something involving them. Uh, just one of the most the best places to be. Um, just mentally and and just lightweight, just bef- gorgeous. Even before there's even any sun, it's just a fabulous spot to be. Um, I don't go and swim in them. I'm, you know, far too much of a water wuss to do that. But I love. Um, I just I, lo- I love the idea of them. So that's a sort of an ongoing project. But um, what I what it did mean was I um, uh, got out of bed was inspired to go test my camera, shot something that ended up started being, you know, 15 minute little muck around with a couple of cameras ended up being this sort of something I could put some music to and put some human faces in and uh, sort of sprung a few little sort of short films, which I, or little parts of a mini docos, I suppose that I had on my reel and that because I was intrigued by them and because I was um, proud of what I did I showed it to people and then people got to know that I you know was not just directing I was shooting my own stuff again and I had a 5D and I kind of knew what I was doing with it and so it's sort of and that led to project to proper projects so it was definitely it's definitely something to just getting up out of bed and grabbing a camera and and, and um, it certainly kind of led to a whole bunch of new clients and contacts and work for me and not just small stuff i've had some quite reasonably big projects because of it so it's um i don't want everyone to think that i'm just you know little 5d boy i do other stuff but you know for this and but it was a springboard to other things so it's incredible it's i it is still very hard to find the time but um I found that um, you know to 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 take somebody who's grown up with cameras and gets up and gets made to go out and shoot stuff as your bread and butter. It was in what was interesting about five D and the like was it was inspired somebody who's bored crap with cameras and the filming thing to actually get up and do that for fun. 
it's always a little bit hard to get out of bed early and go do it. But as soon as you get there, it's you know completely inspiring. Find um, something that inspires you, a local event, um, a local personality or something um, rather than tra- slider shots of bowls of fruit or whatever. It's... Um, you just have to make the first step of it, and once you do, it can it can inspire you to to keep going with it. And I think having and it, what it did was it let me put our stuff on my reel, which was not what I'd normally done, and what not what I'd normally have. And you know, let me put stuff on the reel that wasn't two people in a kitchen talking about breakfast cereal or um, you know a, a kid's commercial. You know, it was let me put stuff on there that I wasn't the stuff that I had on my reel, but it was more stuff that I wanted to do. You know, I grew up in the whole 80s, 90s thing of loving visuals with music, loving, you know, grew up with the Russell Mulcahy and, and the, the 80s massive big film clips and one of my, what I loved to watch and what inspired me was, you know, big, you know, the crazy 80s, Duran Durani film clips and and um, Michelle Gondry and and um, Godly and Cream and you know the great filmmakers doing stuff to music and I never really got much of the opportunity in commercials to do lovely visuals to music because um, it just wasn't you know just wasn't what I did. Is so, that still kind of prevalent though in, in Australia? The Russell Mulcahy kind of stuff, uh, you know. The I mean, is that big, is that big st- crazy big clips? No, no. Yeah. I think in the states more you've got better budgets, but I think the average clip budget here is something stupid like five, ten grand, twenty grand. Music video budgets here are pretty woeful, and yeah, you know they they are here here. There's kind of like. Uh, th- there'll be a lot of uh, you know. There's there's not really that mid range anymore. It seems like it's either super low or it's really high. It's it's yeah, either going to be like Michael Bay or yeah exactly, or yeah five yeah, D on the beach in ten minutes. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's kind of the same. But people are pretty creative here, and um, it's always a good. It's a great training ground for guys to cut their teeth and film school people to cut their teeth and do great. You know, the, a lot of people aren't, you know, fussed about what they're getting paid. This is about you know, a chance to do something interesting and um, um, stretch their film school talents. When you were growing up and, and you know, Russell Mulcahy went from uh, doing music videos to, uh, I think, uh, Razorback and Highlander and, and some of the stuff he was doing. Uh, yeah, did, did you... loved it all. Just freaking fantastic. Was that kind of your inspiration? Were you looking to be doing features? Yeah, still am. You know, it's one of those things. <laughs> one day. Um, yeah, I think it's a tough uh, transition, yeah. right? I mean, oh. you, you made a Moving Day, which... I just don't. Yeah, absolutely. And that's done really well. It hasn't won a ton of awards, but it's been really... It's won lots of you know, audience awards. And everywhere it has shown, it's done really well. And it's, it's you know, it's well, it's well, well received by, you know, the, the people... So um, I'm I'm really happy with that, and but it wasn't a project that I necessarily wrote. It's just something that I came on board and shot, and it was great and it was good fun. But it wasn't something from ground up that I did. I'm not not necessarily saying that that's a good or a bad thing, 
but um i think it's a great short i mean it's it's completely enchanting and twisted and and it's it's really <laughs> wonderful I, how, did, how did that come about how did you find how did the script get to you and, and well that actually came through through mike that was an fx phd um project so basically for those who don't know about fx phd which is kind of the company that um mike seymour my co podcast co-host uh works for it's online filmmaking visual effects post-production training and what they'll do to obviously to feed that machine they'll need to have original content that they can then um do post-production work with or to have a have a project that needs post-production or needs visual effects or computer graphics 3d whatever um so that they have content to rather than you know have that sort of faked up film school thing where you have a fake problem and a fake solution you know do they constantly fund real projects that bring up real world issues and real world shoots uh pro, real world shots with um, that need uh, post and the people that are working on it are students of the uh, the course and you're learning on a real project that will then obviously not just be a little test shot that you just then bin it's something that you can put on your reel it's an IMDB credit that you can uh, put your name to and uh, the project ends up being um, created uh, visual effects wise by um, alumni of the course so you're you're not just learning fake stuff. You're actually working on real productions. So it was they needed they needed a project which had uh, some visual effects content, and obviously as part of that, I also did a, a directing course. So it was sort of started off as a a lot of courses, and ended up obviously being resulting in a in a short film. So it sort of came about quite unusually really but uh uh you know the the dp did a a course on the, on shooting that project with the red and i did a directing course and then there was visual you know, visual effects people all did courses so it's um yeah it was a, a great project and resulted in a, in 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 a great little short so was the script perfect. written with the intention of doing it for uh for fx phd yeah it was mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't write the script, but I sort of, um, as you would, you know, changed it and altered it a little bit. But it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a script of mine. Has that uh, done anything for you uh, career-wise? Just because um, it, it, it is, it, it from the stuff I've seen of yours, it, it is a little bit of a different style uh, than yeah. you know, than what you've typically done. Yeah, no, it it hasn't. I I don't think it has. I mean, it's always great. I I'm I'm happy I've done something other than TV commercials. That's why I'm happy I've done stuff like Sea Pool and stuff that I'm that are outside of what I normally do. I'm I'm, I'm proud of it from that point of view. I'm proud. I, it I guess it it it. I haven't directly seen any sort of benefits, but it is a. I've got a lot of kid stuff on my reel anyway, so it's it's an adjunct to that. It's 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 um, the, the the core lead actress is like a little five year old girl who's oh doing, she's great doing some little crazy stuff. So yeah. I like the fact that it's uh, it's a good piece of uh, kid directing as well. So it it's definitely it's it's another string to the the real for sure yeah well it's i mean she kind of becomes sort of like rambo kind of uh you know there's the whole montage where where she's yeah. uh she's getting ready to kick some ass yeah <laughs> yeah it's very different it's very it's kind of dark and funny and silly and yeah, it's good fun so before you go any projects that you have coming up that you're excited about 
Um, I'm just finding myself being more and more excited by things that aren't commercials and things that aren't the standard format. And I, th I guess I'm excited a bit more about this year that what I can see so far coming up is commercials being sort of unraveled a bit and clients realizing and already seeing it now clients seeing the realizing that uh, what i touched on before that you know they're wanting to lean more towards reality and doing less actual sort of classic commercials and more um more branded content more more human-based and reality-based work and more long-form stuff. So I guess I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm hopefully uh, have a feature project by the end of the year, although I said that last year. <laughs> um, I'm happy for anything that is not... Uh, uh, I'm dearly love to be, be working on longer form stuff but you know it's 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 a very different sort of circles that you're evolving when you're in um you know in tvcs and commercials it's it's, it's a whole this sort of you know uh, one of those venn diagrams where the circles actually really don't sort of meet too much in the middle and it's uh that's what i find so i'm slowly you know trying to bring those those together and so maybe this year i think i'm going to be doing um a few more um projects uh off around the world doing longer format um doco beautiful sort of good looking doco type stuff this year um which makes me happy and uh always excited to satisfy the my inner geek and go to nab as i've done for the last two couple of years which is a terrific it's becoming really changing into a from what was uh, a technical uh, oscilloscope nerd white coat slide rule kind of a show to a really production-based um filmmaking get together thing where people who you don't have to be uh, a camera nerd to go to there's a lot of people I respect in the industry who who go there and talk and present and just get a heads up on the new gear and it's 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 becoming a massive launch base it's it's the it's the um it's the detroit motor show of of of, of stuff everyone a lot there's a lot of stuff gets launched there a lot of new gear previews there um and more and more you walk the halls and meet people who you respect and I know and aren't just sort of, um, you know, actually working industry professionals and gods and it's it's a really becoming a really great place to, to, to go and network and, um, yeah. And there's the, the odd oscilloscope and white coat and slide slide reel still going on there, but uh, it's really good to to make contacts with this with the, in this with this industry and and engage with the people that make the gear that you use. It's uh, you know they listen, and it's a really great opportunity to um, um, have a hand in in the next stuff we get to play with, and you know it can only make you more creative. I'm sure. Right. All right, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thanks for doing the show. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And that was the great Jason Wingrove, who you can hear with his buddy Mike Seymour on the RC. You can find that podcast at fxguide.com or on iTunes. 
You can find his work at jasonwingrove.com. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered, feel free to send them my way. Please put Spodcast in your subject matter. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast on swayproductions.com. This is Ron Small saying goodbye.